Welcome back. Uh, uh, this is uh, Mike Egner for Mind Matters News. I have the uh, pleasure and privilege of interviewing uh, Arjuna Gallagher. Uh, Mr. Gallagher is from New Zealand. Uh, he is a Hindu. Uh, he has um, a superb YouTube channel called Theology Unleashed and has released a wonderful do documentary that I highly uh, recommend. Uh, and uh, the documentary is entitled uh, The Persecuted Saints You've Never Heard Of. Uh, welcome back, Arjuna. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. On, on our last session, we talked a little bit about um, the evolutionary argument against naturalism. Uh, the the, the um, people who believe in evolution obviously believe in the um, reliability of their own ability to reason. Uh, that is, that, that they believe that they can logically understand uh, themselves, understand nature. Um, but um, a number of um, uh, philosophers and, and uh, theologians, particularly uh, Alvin Plantinga, have put forth an argument that if if our uh, our mind, our ability to reason, uh, uh, arose strictly through evolutionary means, uh, that we have no reason to trust it, uh, to trust our ability to reason as a way of ascertaining truth, because it evolved as a way to reproduce, a, a way to maximize the number of our offspring, not as a way to understand truth. So how do you feel about uh, the uh, evolutionary exp explanations for the human mind? One thing I want to say first off is that I think we can know that we have an ability to reason even if our worldview doesn't explain that. So uh, like we can have a, a self-evident understanding that I have an ability to reason as a first principle, uh, even if our worldview doesn't support that. So the argument for God from this, it's called the, in philosophy, the argument from reason, uh, would be that there's a contradiction between the worldview and the ability to reason. Uh, not that the atheist is unable to reason or doesn't know that they have an ability to reason. So that, that, that kind of uh, is a rejection of presuppositionalism. Some people might be upset by that, but a lot of people will be satisfied. Uh, so Donald Hoffman wrote, wrote a book called A Case Against Reality, where he argued that our, that evolution he thinks that evolution can explain us being good at math because there's survival advantages to being able to do math well, I suppose. I, I don't know if it explains being really good at high, understanding highly abstract concepts because you can imagine the mathematician you know, that's pottering around being the one who comes and gets eaten by the bear because they're not paying enough attention to the outside world, right? Right. Well, it, it would seem to me there, there, there'd be a fairly simple way of testing the hypothesis that evolution was the source of our ability to do math just by uh, checking the um, reproductive success of mathematicians as compared to, say, for example, uh, rock stars. Um, I, I think that, I mean, the, 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 the notion that um, that sort of esoteric uh, mental activity makes you reproductively successful that doesn't seem to be too credible if you just look at the average uh, high school dating scene. Uh, so, I, uh, uh, you know, math, mathematicians are not reproductive superstars. So um, it's kind of it's hard to buy that argument. Yeah, the, the counter argument might be group selection, that a gene pool which is capable of producing these kinds of intelligences is better at surviving, even if the people with those kinds of intelligences don't have a better reproduction rate. Yeah, yeah, sure, you can make that argument, but but then that gets into the whole problem of group versus uh, group selection versus selfish genes. Uh, that it would seem to be the 
that 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 uh, at least within the population that mathematics would be uh, a vanishingly rare thing because uh, everybody else would be reproducing at the because the mathematicians have conferred them benefit uh, so you get fewer and fewer math mathematicians as the generations go go along but it, it be, you kind of get into a uh, what, what I think is kind of a crazy uh, Darwinist kind of way of reasoning that doesn't make too much sense to begin with. So, um, from from your perspective on uh, Hinduism, what what is the metaphysical structure of reality? That's kind of a big question, but but how does metaphysics work? So the Sanskrit word tattva is the closest you'd come to ontological category. It's a demonstrative pronoun. It's from the demonstrative pronoun tat, which means that. So that when you convert it to a philosophical term comes to mean things that actually exist. So it's categories of existence. Uh, and as that goes, you've got three broad categories as you get in most traditions, which is God, the world, and the living entities. But then with the material creation, it gets a bit more complex. There's, there's I haven't studied it for a while, but there's something like the Mahabhutas and there's like 25 elements. One of them includes God. Then there's all the way, there's various other stages and you get down to 10 senses plus the mind. So the mind is counted as a sense. And then the material energy is composed of five elements, you know, earth, ether, you know, the, the standard five. And those five elements each have different qualities. And you go from subtle to more gross. So ether is the first element. And then you get air, I think fire is next, water, and then earth. And uh, they each contain progressively more qualities. And that there's one one idea you do get, which is you don't find in Christianity so much, I think, is this idea of subtle and gross. So there's more subtle energy. So you know, there's there's like the subtle body and the gross body, and the subtle body is carried from lifetime to lifetime. That includes impressions. So if you suffer trauma or or whatever other experiences you have that leave a deep impression on the soul, they carry it into the next lifetime. So you'll, you'll, you know, as anyone who's been around children is aware, they're, they're a diverse collection of personalities uh, that can't be explained by the differences in environments. So you know, I've got two kids and they're, all, they're both completely different from one another. And this is explained by the, them carrying over impressions from past lives in the subtle body. And then the gross body is, is something produced as a result of that. And there's the material universe, which is composed of matter. And there's the spiritual world, which is composed of sat, chit, and ananda, which is eternity, knowledge, and bliss. So it said that the, the qualities of this living entity, that the jiva, the jivatma, is sat, chit, ananda, just as God is sat, chit, ananda. So we're one in quality with God, but different in quantity. We're a tiny spark of the divine, whereas God is the infinite absolute divine yeah david bentley hart wrote a, a wonderful book on uh, that uh, particular topic um the experience of god i think and and he divided the book into those three topics uh and pointed out that uh although there are a lot of differences between individual faiths um they all seem to identify those three things as being central to uh central to existence uh, and 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 to to be characteristics of God in in uh, in one way or uh, or another. Yeah, it's called the experience of God being consciousness and bliss. Right. Yeah, I highly recommend that book. It's really good. And you you uh, you had a chance to uh, interview David Bentley Hart on on theology unleashed, right? Yeah, I've had him on twice. Once it was it was just me interviewing him along with a, a fellow Christian, and um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. He he was a good sport. 
He's a fascinating guy, and he's a magnificent writer. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a beautiful writer. I, uh, he did a, a wonderful um, book on the uh, problem of evil related to the um, uh, East Asian tsunami uh, back about 15 years ago uh, called uh, the, the Doors of the Sea was uh, the title of it. It was a beautiful reflection on the nature of evil and uh, theodicy. It was very interesting stuff. I haven't read that one. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, he um, as, as I recall, his basic argument was we do not understand why evil occurs, that God is completely good, that there is nothing evil in God. We don't understand why evil occurs, and it's better for us that we don't, meaning that it's, it's a topic that is simply beyond us uh, and that um, our job is to try to help out as much as we can and to love God and not to blame him for evil. Uh, and uh, I, I found it a very thoughtful way, a way of looking at it. Yeah, sometimes you'll see people who've gone through immense suffering come to a realization that, that you know, they gain some immense wisdom, which they attribute to having gone through that suffering. And they come to some understanding that, that the suffering was necessary and the wisdom they got from it is so valuable that they wouldn't uh, trade it for not having suffered that suffering. But of course, oftentimes we're not out on that plateau of having come to that realization. We, we're having to employ a kind of skeptical theism where we have this assumption that God is all good and there's a higher purpose for all of this, but we're not able to see the reasons for it. There is a um, an analogy that I find very helpful in thinking about this. I you know I, I have four four kids, and um, uh, when they were babies, um, if you put them down to nap time before they wanted to go to take a nap, they would they, they would scream bloody murder. They would just they'd be very upset that they had to take a nap, and so they'd be standing in their crib screaming and you know. Um, and from the baby's perspective, this was like the worst thing that ever happened. But obviously, taking a nap is a good thing for them. Uh, but they they were just too immature; they were too young to really un, to really understand it. And um, but I understood it as the parent. And uh, the gulf between me and God, between me and and the ultimate reality, is infinitely greater than a gulf between a parent and a child. So, no matter how terrible something may seem in my life. Um, it's kind of like I'm that infant standing in the ki- in, in the crib screaming, and I, I can't even really begin to understand why God lets this happen. But it doesn't mean that it's in the in the grand scheme of things not explainable uh, in a way consistent with God's goodness. It just means that I can't even begin to understand it myself. But that's my problem. The other thing is I've always considered the the problem of evil to be a very powerful argument for the existence of God. Um, atheists tend to use the problem of evil as an argument against the existence of God. However, um, if you acknowledge that evil exists, then you acknowledge that a moral law exists independently of opinion. Because when people say that things are evil, they don't just mean that it's that something has happened that they disagree with. It means that they think it's objectively wrong, that, that there is something evil about a child dying of cancer or a tsunami killing thousands of people. But if there is something objectively evil about that, then there has to be a source for that objective moral law by which you judge it to be evil. And that source can only be God. Uh, so I, I think the problem of evil actually presupposes God's existence. If God didn't exist, we wouldn't see evil as a problem. We would just have things that we agreed with and disagreed with. but we wouldn't ascribe any moral importance to it. 
Well, the, the atheist can give it as an internal critique and say, you guys believe God's all good. You believe in objective moral values such as that these things are wrong. And yet these things are going on. God's all powerful. Therefore, he could stop it. And he's not. So he can't be all good. Uh, that's an argument they can offer. But often when these people say these things, they genuinely believe that it is objectively wrong for these things to happen. And if they do hold to a kind of objective morality, then the argument flies. Uh, I've heard William Lane Craig describe that, and I think he was talking about this specific argument. Often there's, you know, there's two premises to the argument from objective morality to God's existence. And he's had, had one conversation where he was experiencing that when he talked about the first premise, the person would reject that premise uh, and rely on the second premise. And when you talk about the second premise, the person would accept that premise and reject the other one. Uh, that you know that so in this case it would be uh, objective moral values don't exist. I'm just offering an internal critique. And then when you go over to talking about objective moral values existing, they're like oh, I do think objective moral values exist. I'm just rejecting the other bit. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, another point on the problem of evil is in the Hindu traditions, it, it never really came up, and I've often puzzled over that. Uh, and finally, I think it was Dr. Howard Resnick explained to me that it, it didn't come up because there was this bedrock idea of personal responsibility, thanks to karma and reincarnation. So the, the question didn't really come up as a, a serious philosophical question. It was other things were debated, and it was just a bedrock assumption that we had personal responsibility. And cr Christianity, I would argue, doesn't have the same thing to fall back on because well, the, the, real, the, the real thing that Christianity doesn't have, which we have with karma and reincarnation, is the ability to explain why this person and not that person. Uh, why me rather than someone else? Because with, with previous lifetimes, I can actually have respons responsibility that's genuine, not just, it's just, you know, the, the fiat will of the divine that some people fall here and some people fall there, and we just got to learn and grow from whatever we're given. Right. Yes, the, the, but the, the difficulty with ascribing responsibility based on prior lifetimes is that it, it very much pre presupposes a moral lawgiver, which, which certainly requires uh, a, a personal God. I mean, I, I don't see any kind of mechanistic, in any credible mechanistic way, how um, moral problems in previous lives could be punished in future lives or, or, or rewarded in future lives without a personal God. So uh, I'm not sure that that Hinduism necessarily solves that problem. It it, it just removes it one generation. Yeah, yeah. You still do, still do need God. I was doing a, a comparison between the Hare Krishna views and the the Krishna views. Um, there's plenty of views you could argue against using the moral argument that are or using you know that the karma and reincarnation point can't be explained by plenty of other Hindu views which lack a personal God. Sure, sure. It's certainly in um, with the modern debate between uh, the new atheists uh, and and Christians. Uh, there's a tremendous debate about the uh, existence and uh, reality of, of free will. And um, what what is the the perspective on free will in the in the uh, Hindu belief? So there, there might be Hindus that reject the existence of free will. It, uh, it's not something. I, it's not a question I've really pondered. Uh, in the Vaishnava traditions, free will is is uh, accepted as bedrock uh, and not questioned at all. I don't know if it's something that was debated much in the tradition. Probably not. Um, so yeah, we're we're free agents. We're, we're, I mean, it said there's five factors of action. So we're not a hundred percent free. Um, 
uh, I can't remember the list of five factors of actions. It's in Bhagavad Gita. One of them is the living entity. One of them is karma. One of them is God. One of them is the modes of material nature, which is actually another part of metaphysics we could get into. Um, so the modes of material nature are, are ignorance, passion, and goodness. Ignorance is um, suffering now and suffering later, like like a drug addiction. The, the person's taking the drug, they think it's happiness, but actually it's suffering, like you know, getting drunk at a party or something. And then they suffer the next day too because with, with the hangover. Uh, happiness in the mode of passion is is ch- chasing goals and happiness in the mode of um, goodness is it's well, one way it's described as it's happiness later. Whereas we do some benefit for now later, but uh, it sounds similar to passion when you do that, but the mode of goodness one is, is more, more peaceful and, and conducted. Um, so as for free will, it's we, we associate with the modes of material nature uh, by listening to certain things, hanging out with certain people and that, creates a certain attitude in us though we get covered by a particular uh, combination of the modes of material nature and then those drive our behavior so people who are on alcohol are more likely to commit violence uh, this is caused by the, by becoming more in the mode of ignorance um, so we have free will to one way analogy for it is certain choices we make limit our free will so if i choose to get on an airplane uh maybe i don't have that choice right now but uh, normal times you can choose to get on an airplane but once you're on the airplane your choices are restricted Uh, you can't just get off the airplane in the middle of a flight there's certain things you can do while on the airplane so you still have free will there Uh, and another aspect we can talk about with free will is how it's described that it plays out as what we really do is desiring accepting rejecting uh i want this i don't want that uh and then all of the actions are said to be carried out by the modes of material nature so i will for my arm to move but it's not actually me that moves the arm i want to have the foggiest clue how to execute all the neural actions that are required for the arm to move all i can do is desire that it happened Many thanks to Mike Egnor and this week's guest, Arjuna Gallagher. They'll be back next time to discuss creation and the universe, along with the Hindu perspectives on those topics. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.